Awesome. If you would take out your Bibles, please, and open to Acts uh, chapter 19. <clears throat> We've been in the book of Acts for the better part of a year here, and uh, kind of starting to see the end of the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we're beginning again in chapter 19. And I want to start this morning uh, kind of by engaging your imagination and asking you to think with me here. I want you to think of a time when you saw real power on display, real raw power on display. Um, maybe you saw a big wave, a tidal wave or something like this, and you saw the devastation uh, that it left behind, that just in an instant, that much power could sort of come in and then out and, and leave behind that sort of destruction. Uh, maybe you've seen a tornado or something, 100 plus mile an hour winds that just came through a neighborhood and just raised the ground and just laid everything to waste. Uh, you all live in Alaska, and so uh, you probably, if you've been here for any length of time, uh, you've encountered an earthquake probably by now. Um, I'm from Southern California, so I can't seem to get away from them. Uh, my childhood, we had many of them. In fact, I can remember, uh, I think I was a teenager, I think I was about 13, and there was the Landers quake. Uh, it was close to my house, it was about an hour away, and I think it was 7.4, if I'm not mistaken. And when that happened, it woke us up, and we stood in the hallway, my family stood in the hallway under, under the doorways, in our pajamas, doing all we could to stay on our feet because it was rocking us so badly. And when the ground moves like that, it's an alarming thing, you know. That's all we've got is the ground here, you know. When it moves, you sort of feel exposed. And that's kind of what happens when we encounter these sorts of, um, these things of raw power like this. Sometimes it can cause us to feel very small and sort of insignificant and sometimes even helpless. And this morning we see on display a real power that is the power of the Holy Spirit of God. But instead of it causing us to feel small and helpless and insignificant, I think we should find incredible encouragement from the beauty and the power of God that is within us, that is God the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think this is a, an important time for us to be reminded of God's power because I think there are a lot of Christians today who are feeling kind of somewhat fragile or anxious. We look around the world and we continue to see cataclysmic events and forces opposed to one another. We see even Christianity on decline in the United States. We see a push of secularism all around us everywhere we turn, which is, I think, concerning. And sometimes it's not even just these big macro movements. Sometimes it can just be the abundance of little things in our personal lives that sort of rise up and overwhelm us. I think of uh, the line by Bilbo Baggins, right, from Tolkien's work. I feel thin, like butter spread over too much bread, right? I resonate with that. I get that one. But again, today we're reminded just of the beauty and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, who is within us, who is within us. So Acts chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. 
So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So the first thing I want to draw out of this, and I, I'll give you sort of a warning uh, out of the gates here. I have you know, three points, and we're going to spend most of our time in point one. So as you watch the time go by and you think he's only on point one, we're in trouble. Just, well, you might be in trouble, but I mean to be mostly in point one this morning. So the first thing we see here, the first point is this. In true conversion, believers are baptized in the Holy Spirit. In true conversion, believers are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, true conversion has two elements to it. There is, first of all, repentance or a turning away from sin. But the second element of true conversion is faith, where we turn also to Christ, trusting in him and his work on the cross to pay for our sins. So it's a turning away from and a turning towards. There are two elements to true conversion. And what we find here with these, now I'm going to use air quotes, disciples, okay, I'm going to pull out the air quotes this morning. You can keep a little tally in your notes how many times I do it. But these disciples here that we find, we understand that theirs is not yet a true conversion. What they've experienced is merely repentance, which is a, a good thing to be sure, but not sufficient for salvation. There is a radical difference between mere repentance, and true conversion, which requires also trust in Christ as one Savior. And so what becomes apparent here is that these disciples, as they're called, are not yet disciples of Jesus, but in fact are disciples of John the Baptist. So let me just kind of take a moment and do a little bit of cultural understanding here. The term disciple uh, we often attribute with the 12 or with those who are only disciples of Jesus. But it's really a general term, like student or an apprentice, right? So you, I, might, I might look at a guy who's got an electrical jacket on or something and say, oh, who did you apprentice under? And he could tell me who, who he learned his trade from. So the same thing is kind of on display here. They're disciples, yes, but it begs the question, disciples of whom? And in fact, we learn that they are disciples of John the Baptist. God had sent John the Baptist as a forerunner to Christ to prepare the world for his arrival. And John's ministry was specifically to show people their sin and their need to repent and to begin looking for a Savior. That was his, his ministry. They needed one who could truly atone for sin. Up to this point in Judaism, in the Levitical system, the sacrificial system, they're, they're participating in animal sacrifices on a regular basis, but those sacrifices weren't truly efficient or efficacious to save. They were sort of tokens, tokens of committing oneself in faith to when one could, would come who could save. It's sort of like this. Uh, I like to use the illustration of a credit card uh, balance, and some of you are squirming right now, like, oh man, he brought up credit card. You make your minimum payment on your credit card, and you're just staying in the good graces of your creditor. That's kind of like the animal sacrifices. You're just token 
staying in good faith. But when Christ comes, he comes and pays the whole debt and makes us whole. And so John the Baptist is making, uh, making the way for people so that they would finally recognize the Savior. That's why when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what Paul is able to determine fairly quickly with these disciples, and you kind of wonder how, like, were they not talking right? Were they misbehaving? You know, what was it about them that he goes, whose disciples are you, right? Uh, But anyways, he asks the question. He's able to determine fairly quickly, they're not yet believers in Jesus Christ. They haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit, and they certainly have not received him. So this particular moment for them, this is their true conversion. It's not just a second or an improved baptism. For these 12 guys, it's their conversion and water baptism, which is a symbol of it, all at the same time. That's important to understand if we're going to get the right intent out of this passage. Because there are some common misunderstandings that emerge from this. This is one of those loaded passages where a lot of deviant branches within Christianity uh, come away from here. So that's why I want to spend so much time on this first part. I want to look at three um, common misunderstandings from this unique event. And the first one is this. The first misunderstanding is that salvation somehow is a two-stage process of initial belief to be followed with some subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you have your notes in front of you, if you would change that word from filling of the Holy Spirit to baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's a little more precise, and I should have caught that. But But that's sort of the faulty belief here, that there's a two-stage, initial belief followed by baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is the teaching uh, oftentimes of Pentecostal churches, uh, some Assemblies of God churches, And in some really extreme cases, they'll say it like this. A person isn't truly saved until they're baptized by the Holy Spirit as evidenced by the speaking in tongues. So you may come in and say, yeah, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And they would say, have you spoken in tongues yet? You'd say, no, I haven't. And it's kind of like, well, you're kind of the second class citizen or we're waiting for your salvation in some extreme cases. And as you can see, I think that's just an absolutely faulty conclusion reached from this passage. Because these 12 guys who call themselves disciples are not disciples of Christ yet. They're not saved yet. And also I would say this Pentecostal theology that I just explained here, it doesn't square with the rest of Scripture. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and that's where this is taking place, in Ephesus... In his letter to the Ephesians, he makes it clear when and how a person is saved and baptized by the Holy Spirit. And it happens at the point of their conversion, of their belief. And this is explicit in Ephesians 1.13, where the Apostle Paul says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed... You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now that's very clear. So the second misunderstanding I think we find here, or that emerges from this text, is that 
some people assume that we are baptized with the Holy Spirit at our water baptism, or that that's the point when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. But again, that same passage that I just read from Ephesians 1 makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is given to us when? At the time of belief. What happens oftentimes in the New Testament is that belief and water baptism are so close together that they almost get conflated, if that makes sense. So, but water baptism is an outward symbol of what God has already done inwardly within us. Uh, Or in other words, it's a way to dramatize publicly our identification with Christ and what we know he has already done for us inwardly. So that's the second misunderstanding. And the third one that I think that often misunderstanding that comes from this passage is the belief that uh, miraculous gifts like speaking in tongues or healings or these kinds of things are to be normative in the Christian life or something that you and I ought to expect to do today and on a regular basis. And I've already touched on this many times through our series here, so I'm going to be pretty succinct with it today and just kind of repeat the conclusion. But the first thing I would say is that these phenomena, some of these miraculous things that we're talking about here, they weren't even normative in the first century world. They were exceptional. They were extraordinary. They're even referred to explicitly as that in our passage. Extraordinary. So what wasn't normative then, I don't think we should find to be normative now. Uh, In fact, these gifts that we see often referred to as sign gifts, I think they correspond, they're typically done by the apostles, and they correspond to what Jesus told the disciples at the very beginning of the book in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I think what we often find is these uh, sort of phenomenon or these sign gifts accompanying each one of these waves into these new territories. In Jerusalem at Pentecost, in Judea and Samaria when the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And then thirdly, we see it as the, as the gospel goes out to the wide world, including, including Asia Minor uh, and eventually Rome. And it seems to me that these events kind of serve as authenticators as they go through these border crossings, so to speak, to, to legitimize what was happening and to authenticate it. So these are three common misunderstandings, I think, that emerge from this passage. And I do want to be careful here about this. I, I do not want to strip this passage or the Holy Spirit of the power that we are meant to see. I believe that is why this is told to us. I would not want you to think that this is just a bit of history, just simply telling us what happened once upon a time. If you left here today and you thought, well, Pastor Eric taught, you know, that the Holy Spirit's retired. He's just laying low. And he doesn't really do anything of any power today. Then I would either have preached wrongly or you would have misheard. That is not my intent. I think we are absolutely meant to see the Holy Spirit's life-giving power on display here, but we are meant to rightly understand it. And so this causes me to think of the Apostle Paul's, again, his letter to the Ephesians, in particular, his prayer for them, that they would have a right understanding of the power of God, particularly the Holy Spirit. And so I want to read to you this prayer. This is in chapter 3, starts in verse 16, Ephesians three sixteen. 
Paul, hoping that the Ephesians would understand this power, says this. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is an amazing prayer from the Apostle Paul. And it's interesting to me that so many people who come to the book of Acts or see these phenomenon kind of end up going chasing these power encounters here, even trying to replicate them in their own lives or hoping that they'll be replicated in their lives. And I just want to say, frankly, that's God's business to do. He can show up in powerful and supernatural ways all by himself. He doesn't need us to pull the trigger or push the button. You know what I'm saying? We do not wield the Holy Spirit like a tool to be used. We do not use the Holy Spirit at all. He uses us. It's his prerogative. Notice also, Paul does not rev up his congregation here in Ephesus to ask them to go and replicate these power encounters, right? He doesn't say, hey, get on with these phenomena. What does he say to do? No, I want you through the power of the Holy Spirit to know God to know his love and acceptance for you in Christ Jesus. That's the power encounter he wants the Ephesians to have and us as well. So we move on here into the, the next bit, back to our passage in Acts 19. We get to see how powerful the Holy Spirit is to overcome the evil one. And again, I hope this is a bit of encouragement to you. Verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and, and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their, their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went, out, uh, went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom, preach, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, uh, we're doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? Those are some scary words, yeah? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now 
who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. By the way, drachma is a silver coin that is a day's wages. 50,000 days' wages. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Well, first off, we see here that Paul has a personal best. You know, he gets a couple weeks, three weeks of being able to preach. Usually it takes a couple days before they're ready to kick him out and get rid of him. But here he gets a couple weeks before the likely patterns emerge and he's pushed out again. And then with just a simple change in venue, he gets two years at this lecture hall uh, in Tyrannius. But once again, in all of this, what we see here, our second point, is that the Holy Spirit has power over the spiritual realms and even the human heart. And I think we get a clarification through this section of the source of power and an instrument of power. God is the source of power. We are the instruments that he uses. And unfortunately, I think we often get this wrong, and I'll just plant this seed now, we'll come back to it. Oftentimes, we get caught up trying to use God instead of letting God use us. We invert things, and that's on display here. But we know clearly in verse 11, it says, and God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, right? Extraordinary. I mean, it's really amazing. We're talking about aprons and handkerchiefs that had simply come into contact with Paul. I hope these handkerchiefs were clean, you know, not used. It's kind of gross. But amazingly, even these pieces of fabric that had come into contact with him were used powerfully in the healing of others. But we're told this was extraordinary. So you don't need to go out and get a box of handkerchiefs or buy one from a televangelist on TV that's going to come to you and heal your back pain. This was extraordinary. God did it. He could do it again, but it's his prerogative, absolutely his power. He is the source of power. And I think God using Paul in these extraordinary ways here is contrasted against these seven guys, the seven sons of Siva, uh, I, was, I was thinking about this this week as I was preparing. Some of you might know, wasn't there a Christian band named the, Son, the Seven Sons of Siva back in the day? Does anybody know? There's a little homework for you, extra credit, if you determine that for me. I don't know. I, I think there was, which is a terrible name for a Christian band. Like, did you read the passage? They're not the shiny example, him. Here, they think they can use God. And they manipulate the system. And it goes badly for them. They try to use the name of Jesus like some kind of magical spell or incantation. And they actually reminded me of someone else from the book of Acts from our studies. Anybody come to mind for you? Simon the sorcerer? Remember, he kind of did the same sort of thing in chapter 8. He was enamored by the power of God that he saw on display through Philip's work. And he wanted a piece of that. He basically wanted to, himself, being able to bestow the Holy Spirit on people as he had seen the apostles do. And so he basically offered money to purchase this gift, so to speak. And the apostle Peter smacks him down and basically says, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money? You have no part or share in this ministry 
Because your heart is not right before God. So here we see this cautionary tale of what it looks like when someone tries to use God or manipulate the system rather than letting him use us. Now it's absolutely true that the man or the woman of God who has repented of sin and who has trusted as Christ in Christ as their Savior and received the Holy Spirit has a power at work in them that might use them in profound ways. I love the words of D.L. Moody. He says this, the world has yet to see what God can do through a man fully consecrated to him. That's true. But the person who tries to use God is in for a rude awakening. So we see the power of God on display here in some pretty unexpected ways. First of all, we see the words of this demonized man, and they're stunning, right? Jesus, I know. The demons know Jesus. Paul, I've heard about, right? Who are you? Now, I want a little bit of a side here. There's, there's common mistakes that we can make with sort of the spiritual realm and with demons. One is to place too much emphasis on them and see them under every bush and attribute every action to them. And I think that's a faulty way of thinking. Please don't live that way. That's a sad kind of life. On the other hand, we can make an error to the other side, which is to say, oh, demons don't exist. They're not real. That was once upon a th- time. Ghost stories, whatever. And again, the truth is somewhere in the middle. There are spiritual forces at work all the time, and they are not benign. Now, in all my years in ministry here at the church, over 20 years now, I've only had one direct encounter with the demonic here. And it was attention-getting. A young man was controlled by this spirit, and he was speaking to us. And it was not a voice that I recognized as this young man's. It was different. I will tell you this, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story, that we were able to control and subdue this man in whatever order we gave in the name of Jesus. And that is not because we were using God, but we were allowing God to use us in that moment. And that man was delivered from that demon right here in the front row. And it was, it gets your attention. We're not playing games here. There are spiritual forces at work. But the power of Jesus Christ and of his spirit was on clear display that day. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And that's what we see here. So I want you to recognize, yes, there are spiritual forces operating behind the scenes. Right? The devil is not this little cartoon on your shoulder tempting you to eat one more sleeve of Oreos. Okay? That's, if that's what you think of the devil, you have a faulty view. The Bible says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. So his desire is to destroy you. He is looking to wreck your life. He is looking to hold you in bondage to any number of your pretty little sins. That is his ambition. And our passage here shows us, I think, the great contrast between these seven sons of Siva who are not followers of Jesus, but just looking for the power encounters that they can grasp to use God for sort of their own ego. And they get a beat down. One on seven. Seven pretending to be believers. 
one truly demonized, and they got whooped. And these guys, I think, are contrasted with those in the community who were once enslaved by sin and by sorcery and witchcraft. And it was those who came out confessing their secret sins and truly turning away from their ways, burning their witchcraft wares, 50,000 days wages going up in a big bonfire. It was those that found life and freedom. James 4, 6 says this, God opposes the proud, the seven sons, but he shows favor to the humble, these who repented of sin. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Christian, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. We try to grasp power. We try to use power for our own ends. We try to manipulate God. We will end up in a beatdown. But when we submit ourselves to the Lord and to his ways, we find true freedom. This is our last point. Through true submission to the Holy Spirit, we receive true freedom. So we're going to read about this riot here in Ephesus. Uh, just going to read a portion of this for sake of time. Verses 23 through 32 here. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis. i got to pause right here. Oftentimes I try to show you these things. I would bring in a picture of these uh, silver shrines, except they're basically pornographic. You would all be angry with me, okay? This is a fertility goddess, so I'll let your imagination go where you want with that, but that's why you're not getting a picture this morning. He made these silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. By the way, those are good friends, right? Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into that theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. It reminds me of kindergarten on day one of school, right? Some kids saying this, some kids saying that. No one knowing why they're there. Um, I, I had the privilege to go to Ephesus a couple years back. I have some pictures. Some of you have seen these before, but um, 
wanted to show these. Uh, I have actually mistakenly re- referred to this before as Main Street Ephesus. It's actually not. There's another street that goes all the way out to the Aegean Sea or where the sea used to come in that was actually Main Street. But this is a main thoroughfare. Uh, it was incredibly hot that day, which sounds pretty good right now. This is the uh, edifice of what's left of the library there. Uh, this is, uh, believe it or not, a house church in Ephesus. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of house church. I think of a three-bedroom ranch, you know. Uh, when I go back to the ancient world, I think even smaller than that. But this is a house church. Um, I mean, I, I couldn't even get it all in view. It's, it's quite large. And this is the theater. So the passage that we're looking at right now, this isn't just a fictitious story. This was the place where for hours, thousands of people chanted, great as Artemis, great as Artemis. This is the place where Paul would have been killed had he probably shown up to deal with this issue himself. Now several, um, oh, and here's one more. This is actually from Main Street, walks out from the theater directly to the sea. But there's just gives you a glimpse of the scale, and they estimate about 25,000 people this theater could hold. Uh, many commentators kind of look at this event um, and try to ask the question, why, why are we told this? Why are we given the event of this riot? What, what's the point that the reader is supposed to take away? And there's a few various um, theories on this. Uh, some commentators think that this is uh, what we're meant to take away from this is that the issue resolved itself on its own. See, Paul didn't need to enter in. And so this is a way that we should see that we can trust civil authorities and not enter the fray all of the time. And I go, okay, I don't know about that. Um, others would say this, that once again we see persecution and opposition as the constant headwind upon which Christianity rises. And I go, definitely that's true of the whole of the book of Acts, so it's also true here. But what really stands out to me in this last incident is this. I think we get a really clear picture of the human condition outside of Christ. Here we see a group of people um, who are still clinging to their pride, their ability to work, what their money can purchase, their fear, their insecurity, all of these things, their anger. And I think we're meant to see the human condition outside of Christ. Uh, there is a great paradox in the Christian faith uh, that, is, that says that true freedom is found actually counterintuitively in submission to the Holy Spirit of God. That is where true freedom is found. Uh, Jesus teaches this, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. And while that might sound kind of hard to believe or sort of, again, paradoxical, we see it on display. We see the bondage and the deranging influence of sin among this riotous crowd. Saint uh, Irenaeus, who is a second century church father, uh, is famous for saying this, the glory of God is man fully alive. And I love that saying because I think it reminds us of just what God's mission is right now, what he's doing with us. God made us to be human and to truly flourish 
And yet through sin and the fall, the image of God is marred in us. Our humanity is distorted. And we live subhuman lives. Christ has come so that we might learn to be human again and be restored, our humanity restored. Let me say it kind of in a provocative way. Jesus didn't come so that you would be Christian. Jesus came to restore your humanity, coming to a saving knowledge of him and imitating his way as a means to an end. But the end is that we would have our humanity restored that God made us with prior to the fall. So it's true, but I mean to irritate you a little bit with that. This riot to me is a great example of fallen mankind still gripped by fear and pride and their desperate need for power. What we see here is that in that setting, deceit and chaos reign wherever Christ does not. And so we find true freedom in our submission to Christ and to his Holy Spirit. I want to close this by reading again the Apostle Apostle Paul's words of encouragement to the Ephesians about what kind of power encounter we need to have. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come to restore us to God's good intention for us to be truly human, flourishing humans, a good thing to be. Thank you that in Christ our sins can be forgiven if we repent. Thank you that in Christ, through faith, Lord, you restore us. You give us life. You give to us your Holy Spirit who is powerful to work within us. And I do pray, Lord, that my church family here and myself would have power to know the love and acceptance of God in Christ Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.